A quick update for you guys. Uh, A few weeks ago, I let you know that we needed 70 plus slots filled in children's ministry during this hour, which would mean some of you guys would probably need to be attending the first service and then working this service. Um, The good news is that that number has gone from over 70 down to 30. We now need 30 slots. That's awesome. That's a fantastic move in the right direction. Um, But it also means we're not there yet. My my instinct, uh, a little bit of that is like, wow, it's just an insurmountable number as it continues, especially as we continue to grow. Um, And and I realized um, that's not accurate. Explain why. One, uh, and just just to really encourage you, um, the significance of this and importance of this, um, some of you have actually taken your kids in to children's ministry and found out that the class your kid was in is closed. Um, that it would be, we decided, unsafe or inappropriate to add more children to that class. Um, That's unfortunate. That shouldn't be happening in our church, but it's because we don't have enough leaders and teachers and servants stepping into that. And so literally we have kids who have not been able to go. So if you're a parent, uh, especially of kids in those classrooms, you're probably going to get an email this week encouraging, like, it's probably time for you to sign up, get trained, get involved. And so be looking for that email for everybody else. You just go find Rebecca um, or Carly or Jared or anyone on the team and let them know, hey, I'm interested in serving and I need to, I need to get on that and I've not been doing it and it's, it's high time for me to do that and we will figure out a way, hopefully, to get all that paperwork done and everything. But here's why um, it's, it's, it's anyone can still um, have that opportunity. This is what struck me. So and when you're working in a church setting, our goal, um, one of our mottos here is that every member is a minister. Um, that's our goal. We're working towards that. We want every single member of our church to be a minister. And, and that's, that's, a big, that's a big deal. That's what we're working. That's the discipleship of the church is that we become ministers and we serve where the opportunities and needs are. And so um, every member being a minister is a big part of, of who we are. So what we've discovered is ministers are in the church setting. Uh, ministers, typically, they are serving in the church, in the church ministry world at least, at least three hours a week. Um, now, you might go, wow, that's kind of a big ask. Not for ministers, it's not. Um, if you're a minister, you, you're, ministering all, you're ministering 80 plus hours a week. It's just that three of those or more are assigned to the work of the local church. You're ministering in your home. You're ministering in your workplace. You're ministering as you walk down the street. You're ministering as you're buying things at the store. If, if you're a minister, that's something you're doing all the time. And those ministers assign a minimum, usually we've discovered, at least three plus hours a week in church ministry focus. Then we have learners. Learners are people who come usually about two hours a week, and they come to the big room, the great room service, this one. Thank you. That's awesome. We're glad that you're here. And then they get there involved in a life group also, typically one of the larger life groups. Uh, and so what they're doing is they're getting two hours or so a week of input. That's great. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. However, there is a risk to it. The risk is that we end up becoming what Francis Chan called thousand pound Christians. Um, Have you ever seen my thousand pound life, a TV show like that, where someone who's literally too big to move is ringing a little bell asking for more food to be given to them? Um, and so at some point, someone should say, you might should burn some of those calories, right? Just, just sitting there going like, um, I'm here to church to be fed. Good. Excellent. I'm so glad that's the case. This is the right place for it. 
However, it's also meant to feed you so that you can go burn those calories, whether it's here or in other ministry settings. We want to encourage you with that. Um, so being a learner is good, but being a learner is probably not sufficient. We have servants. Servants are people who typically they serve an hour every week and they typically worship an hour. They may do a life group or something instead, but that's typically what we're talking about is the servants, those who, who work at least one hour a week in the church setting. They usually come to community worship as well, which is great. Again, all of that is good stuff, all of that. However, on a give, any given Sunday morning, we also have somewhere in the area of three to 400 people who come to one hour. And typically that's this, who come to just the great room service. A lot of reasons why that may be. One, you, you may be someone who is new, your guest. In that case, thank you. Welcome. We are so glad you are here. And uh, we hope that as you find that this ends up being your church home, that you find ways to get involved and engaged and change the world through the uh, Great Commission. We'd love to be a part of that with you. Some of you, this is respite. You have come because you have been traumatized by life or even by church. And you're coming, you want to come someplace, you're like, I just need to rest, and I just need to relax, and I just need a place where I can kind of go hide from the world and be around safe people who will love me and care about me. If that's you, welcome. We are so glad you're here. Rest as long as you need. Um, we, of course, we have all the pastor search committees that come week after week. Yeah, they got nothing for service either. I was like, there's not enough Baptists in the room for that to be funny, I guess. It's like, in a Baptist church, that would work. That joke would work. Um, and no, I, I, I don't know if that's ever the case. The, um, uh, uh, <laughs> that might be one reason you're here only one week. Uh, I want only one hour a week. Um, so there's all these different things that you might, reasons you might be here that are totally appropriate, totally fine. But we also think that there's probably several hundred people every week who come who are essentially what you're you're engaging with the church as a spectator. Um, it's not that you need, it's not that you've been broken and hurting and need the rest. It's just that an hour is all you want to give. I would love to challenge you. Church is not a spectator sport. Um, church is, church is meant, listen, again, all the different reasons I just listed, that's different. But if you're someone who comes and, and you've been attending, and especially if you've got people involved in different ministries that we're running, I'd love to really encourage you. Step into the next role. Take on some more of that opportunity to minister. Burn some of those ministry calories that you've been gaining, those feed me calories you've been gaining. I'd really love to encourage you. Church is meant to be where the church members are ministers. I think a lot, in a lot of churches that I've, I've worked in, it's like the staff is on the field and the church members are in the stands. And that's not one. We can't function like that. We need dozens of people every single Sunday just to work with our children. And so we don't have the luxury of that anyway. But when you think about it, there's probably 150 to 200 people every single Sunday who are serving as spectators. Well, we need 30 people to step up as ministers at a new level. That's not that big a number when you start with that big. And so I'd love to encourage you, if that's you, an opportunity, find some opportunities to get involved, get engaged. Uh, maybe it's in children's ministry, maybe not. Whatever it is, I'd really love to challenge you and encourage you. All right, so um, 1 Samuel chapter 23. Oh, and those 40-something people... Um, who signed up to work in children's ministry since we said something, thank you very much. Um, that's, a huge, that's a huge deal. It is a big deal. You are investing in the future of the kingdom of God on earth. 
Um, I don't know how many of our kids will become ministers and missionaries, how many will become business people and doctors, and, and how many will become camp workers and all the different things that we see, all the different ways that people minister in their homes, in their community, or whatever. But I do know that almost all of those people started in a children's ministry and were invested in in key ways. So um, that's why part of why we're here is to equip the next generation. And we don't know what they're going to face. It's likely to be much harder than what we've faced. And so investing in that's a big deal. First Samuel, I'm going to wrap up chapter 23 because it allows me to introduce you to one of my favorite places on the planet. I just barely touched on it last week, and that is Ein Gedi. Um, we have a video that shows you the Judean wilderness in the area of Qumran, which is where Ein Gedi is. You can start uh, running that <clears throat> so that you get a correct picture of what we're describing. That's the Dead Sea in the background. It's called the Dead Sea because nothing lives there. Um, essentially, nothing lives there. In fact, if you drink a cup of it, it will kill you too. Um, it, is, it is that toxic an environment. Um, it's so filled with different solids that you float essentially on the surface of it when you get to go play in it. If you go with us to Israel um, next year or in the future, you uh, probably will get that opportunity to get to. It's a unique experience. There's nothing like it. This is 580 square miles, about the size of Houston, 580 square miles of the Judean wilderness, which looks like this. It is not a hospitable place. Um, it is death on a stick. It is hundreds of degrees in the summer. It's the lowest place on earth. Um, there is no drinkable water um, that comes naturally almost anywhere in this part of the world. Um, and the water that is there, you can't drink. How remote, how crazy are we talking away from anything else? Well, I'll show you. We got a picture here. Uh, go ahead and cut to that. So this is Masada. Uh, Masada is a fortress that's up on the top of a mountain in the middle of the Qumran, uh, in the middle of the Judean wilderness near um, Ein Gedi. Masada was lost in the 700s, 700s A.D., um, it was, it was, that's the last time it was used. It was shut down. People left. How, do, how remote is this area? It was not rediscovered until the mid 1800s. Um, so the invention of air flight and space travel and all that kind of stuff, uh, it, all those things fall. You can imagine how hard it would be to find this place until those things get invented, which is not long after it was discovered. So in the mid-1800s, Edward Robinson and his assistant um, visited, visiting Ein Gedi, looked over and saw this and thought, that doesn't look totally natural, especially that big ramp of sand looks abnormal. That doesn't look like that belongs there. A few years later, um, the American missionary Samuel Wilcott and the British artist William Tipping climbed it. And they got to the top and discovered the ruins of a huge fortress. I have an artist rendering of what it might have looked like at the time of Herod the Great, who is the one who turned it into this. So this is what it would have looked like then. This is when, this is what it would have looked like when 900 Jewish rebels um, hid up here during the Roman occupation. It took the entire 10th legion, five or 6,000 Roman soldiers, three years to finally kick them out. The way they did it was by building a huge man-made ramp all the way up the side, all the way up to the top, so they could push their siege engines and soldiers up to the top and finally take it. It's an unbelievable story. Um, it's worth telling. Um, it's not in this passage. Could this be the strongholds of Ein Gedi that is being referenced here? Well, the answer to that is no. This was built by King Herod a thousand years after David hid there. However, is it reasonable to think that there was already a fortress on this hilltop at the time of David? Yes, 
for sure, this could easily be the right location when we see that David is hiding at the fortresses and the strongholds of Angedi, that it might have easily been this area, certainly in this region. Was David here? For sure, somewhere in this area. So let me show you, Angedi is a series of, of canyons in here in the Judean wilderness. Well, I've got the, the Israeli um, map. Now, so those of you who are skiers, those are not ski slopes. Um, there is no skiing at Angedi. Uh, that's not a black diamond over there. You know, those aren't the ski slopes. Um, uh, those are paths, uh, some of which you don't want to even try to. They're goat paths. They're called that because only goats can get up and down them um, with any ease. Um, this shows some of us hiking. We had a picture of some of us hiking um, in the Angedi wilderness. There you go. Um, so you can see, not hospitable. But as you follow up the creek bed, as you keep going up the creek bed, you start seeing things like this. There starts being some green down here in the middle of the, and you keep going, and you start seeing little pools of water in Angedi. Go a little further, and you start seeing larger pools, and eventually you come to almost this jungle-like setting right here in the middle of the Judean wilderness in this place called Angedi. You start seeing these waterfalls. Eventually you want to dive in and jump in and, and cool off and, and all the stuff. And so, so thinking about this for a second, though, if you've traveled much around the world, as cool as that is, go back, please. As cool as this is, it's really not that impressive. I mean, if you've been to Yellowstone or or like, I don't, I don't know, Africa or something, like you've, you've seen more impressive waterfalls. I mean, it's only like a 30-foot waterfall. It's not that, not that big a deal. What makes it impressive is not the waterfall itself. It's where the waterfall is in the middle of 580 square miles of death is where it is. It's not that massive a waterfall, but it's the middle of a desert. Now, how do you get there? How do you get water like this in the middle of a desert? Well, it's fed by storms. And it's not fed by storms in the Judean wilderness. It's fed by storms in the Judean hill country. So that like where Jerusalem is, Jerusalem is up in the Judean hill country, and you get good storms up in Jerusalem. Some of us have been trapped in storms up in Jerusalem. Um, you could be there in the middle of March and have it snow. You get these huge floods sometimes running down the streets of the old city in Jerusalem. Those storms create this kind of rain the rain enters these natural aquifers that run underground, and they run dozens of miles all the way through the Judean wilderness. When they arrive, Angedi starts looking like this. This is right by Qumran. Or you start seeing flash floods that look like walls of water suddenly washing down. You don't want to be there. Um, it's one of the things, you, if you're there in those areas and it starts raining in Jerusalem, your guide gets a phone call. Um, it's raining in Jerusalem, probably time to head out. Roads wash away, people wash away um, during these every year. In fact, if you, you want to, for fun, this afternoon, go on YouTube and search Ein Gedi floods, um, or even Jerusalem floods, and see how they're connected. It's terrifying. But these floods, these storms in the central area, and these floods are what give us things like David's pool which is where we go when we teach about, um, when we teach about what these are one of the pools here in this area, and we teach about the power of, of this life in the middle of death. In fact, one of my favorite things to mention here is, uh, is the way that the, song of so the author of the Song of Solomon <coughs> references, the, the, the two spouses kind of reference each other in terms of Ein Gedi. My, my man is like Ein Gedi, my woman is like Ein Gedi in my life. 
It's kind of natural for us sometimes if we're not careful to think that the main role of a spouse is to kind of keep your spouse in check. You know, knock them down a few pegs periodically. Make sure they don't get too big ahead. Not too much pride going on. But what they're referencing here is the fact that here you have, believe me, the world's doing that plenty. The world, the death out there is doing plenty of destroying your spouse. What your spouse, what God wants you to provide for in your spouse's life is a place of respite, a place of comfort, a place where there's cool water and life. That that's the image that's being created in this passage. I'm not going to spend any more time here because I end up speaking the whole time on the power of Ingeti in marriage. Every time I go, I bring back Ginger a bottle of water from Ingeti and, and uh, we have a little, she has a little container that I'll put that in. It's, it's, a, um, uh, it's an amazing reminder of who I'm supposed to be to her and how I get to celebrate who she is to me. Here in the middle of the miles of death with seawater that is completely toxin to life, here David finds a home. You may input at this moment, take a second and input your own lesson in your own life about the role of wilderness and respite in your relationship with God. So this is where David goes. David goes and lives in the strongholds of Ein We often don't suffer well. We often don't mourn well. And when we work so hard as we do in America to avoid any type of discomfort, any type of pain, any type of mourning, any type of struggle, because we work so hard to never struggle, we don't get to celebrate and experience how great a 30-foot waterfall can be when it's in the middle of a desert. We're never truly hungry, so we don't know what it's like to suddenly be filled. We lose something very important by that, I think, that's key. This sometimes keeps us that we work so hard to face the wilderness. Because we work so hard to avoid facing the wilderness, it can keep us from appreciating Angedi when we come across it. Uh, John Redfern, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, pointed out that the word here for lived, the word yashab, it's, it's, a, it's not the same word that's used for other locations where David goes. This is this word, it, it actually is the technical word that means to sit, to remain, to abide, to settle. Um, as the great theologian Pumbaa once said, home is where your rump rests. David had little, but what he had was sufficient. It was what he needed. This was now, for a period of time, going to be David's home. I believe a lot of the Psalms are rooted and are written here. It's a refreshing change for him, a place to settle down, even if it's in the middle of a desert. The Lord is his salvation. David settles into God's hands in the middle of the wilderness. The Lord is his salvation. His hope is hidden in the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, probably meaning conscripted men. Remember, Saul doesn't inspire followers. He has to conscript them. When Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Ein Gedi means goat. Uh, Gedi means goat. Ein Gedi. The spring of the goat um, is where they are. Only goats go there. Why would a human go through 580 miles of death just to get to these springs? And yet, that's the idea. But here we have Saul's going to conscript 3,000 men to go hunt for David and his 600 men in the wilderness of Ein Gedi, which is wild to me. This is not enough men. Um, Saul is making, it's, it's unbelievable. Like it feels like every decision Saul makes, um, with a very few exceptions, are bad ones. And this is another one. Remember, it took the Roman legion, it took five to 6,000 Roman soldiers to drive out 900 Jewish rebels, and it took them three years to do it. 
And that doesn't include all the slaves that the Romans brought with them um, to, to do this. Now Solomon, Saul thinks, I'm going to just bring 3,000 men and I'm going to kick out David's 600 men out of this area. No, he's not. Why would you follow the, the, the greatest killer alive into the wilderness like this? Saul is mad. He's going insane, I think, and, and in, a, in a spiritual sense, evil sense. This is foolish and arrogant and stubborn. Now, this may be a reference to him finally leaving some men behind to actually defend the country for a change, to keep the Philistines from coming back. But whatever it is, if 900 zealots could hold off an entire 10th legion of Rome for three years, I don't think these 3,000 men are going to do the job. Verse 3, And he came to the sheepfold by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is one of those crazy stories I remember as a kid, hearing this, this story in Sunday school and being like, what, what is this Bible thing? Like this is a crazy Story. Now we know if you've been coming um, for the last almost year studying for Samuel, and we get here and you're like, oh, robes. Robes are significant in Samuel. You're right. That's a good job. Way to pay attention. Uh, remember little Samuel's robes made by his mother and brought to him in the, in the tabernacle? How sweet that was. Jonathan placing a kingly robe on David as a sign of their covenant and friendship. Saul tore Samuel's robe at one point in anger, and Samuel says to Saul, God is going to tear away the kingdom from you the way you just tore my robe. The symbol of authority is very clear. The robe is symbolizing the authority, the right to rule. Here in the Hebrew, it actually says, the, word, the phrase relieving himself in the Hebrew is actually covering his feet, meaning with his robe. So this is, this is one of the advantages of wearing a robe, especially in the wilderness. When you're wearing a robe, you're taking with you everywhere a changing booth. Everywhere you go, you've got a door for your bathroom. All you've got to do is sit down and spread the robe around you so that no one can see what you're doing. That's why this language here is almost certainly a euphemism for going to the bathroom. That's what Saul's doing. Again, I can't follow his logic. What's he thinking? I'm going to take 3,000 men and we're going to go hunt down the greatest killer of our time who I'm convinced is out to get me. I don't know why he's out convinced of that. There's been no evidence of that. But for whatever reason, Saul in his paranoia has decided, David's out to get me. I'm going to go hunt him down here in Ein Gedi wilderness. And then I get here with my 3,000 men and I think, I need to go to the bathroom. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wander off by myself and take care of business in this cave. Now that makes sense. You would think like it's hot. He wants to get out of the heat. He wants to get to a cool spot. He wants to go to an isolated spot to go relieve himself. So he goes there into... Now, now let's take a moment. What a great movie scene this would be, by the way. So you need to imagine David and several of his men. These aren't huge caves. There are thousands and thousands of caves in this region. Um, just the other day, someone found new um, ancient equipment hidden in one of these caves. And this is in Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Let me tell you, everybody is searching every cave they can find. The greatest, maybe the greatest archaeological discovery of all time was found in this region in a cave by a shepherd boy throwing rocks. And you can imagine now everyone in the world goes over there and wants to dig in the cave. In fact, when we go, we usually tell people, like, if you see a cave, throw rocks in it. If you hear pottery break, your name may be set forever, right? So this is a, 
We, we encourage that and people are doing, and they're, they're still finding new caves and new stuff all the time from this region. So this just, this, again, like I said, it recently happened. So of all the thousands and thousands of caves in this Ein Gedi region, this canyon region in the Judean wilderness, David and his men are hiding. They're not, by the way, we've not found many huge caves that could hold 600 men. So you've got to imagine they're spread out probably. David is hiding in this cave with some of his men, and they're there, and they see this army coming. 3,000 people. They've seen, been seeing the dust for two days. And so the, these 3,000 men, and these 3,000 men march straight to the cave where David is hiding. Of all the gin joints in all the world, where do they go? David's cave. And they stop right outside. You've got to know David and his men think the gig's up, right? I mean, we're done. They've boxed us in. Next come the torches and the spears. So David and, and the men who are with him, they go, they move back. We found there are several caves. Traditionally, there's a cave that, that actually has like a crawl space that you can crawl and then hide in the back region um, where, no one can, where you might be able to stay hidden back there. And David and his men, maybe, that, maybe that's the right one. They go back there and they hide. And here comes Saul. And, and what happens is they're going, here come the torches. Here come the spears. We'll do our best. We're going to take as many of them with us as we can, but we're good as dead. They're going to get us. Um, so we're going to hide whatever. And not a whole army doesn't come. Not torches, not spears. One guy. One guy comes and blocks out the entrance of the cave as he creeps in. He comes in, and it's not just one guy. It's Saul. Alone. And here are David and his men hiding in here. So David here, now to further our picture of robe, sneaks up and cuts off a piece of Saul's robe, figuratively cutting away at Saul's right to rule. Now, picture it. David's men go, uh, that's Saul. We can end this now. These last few years of hell being chased all over this region, I mean, they probably walked. I don't know that they have any animals with them. They probably walked across all the Judean wilderness to get to this spot. They get there. This has not been a comfortable day. This has not been a comfortable month. This has not been a comfortable decade for David and his men as Saul has been chasing them. And they go, this is it. We can get him. And David takes his knife, sticks it between his teeth, crawls stealthily up to Saul, who's relieving himself, playing his little game on his phone. As he sneak, David sneaks up to him, David pulls his, not his, his knife, cuts, creeps back to his men, and says, I cut a piece of his robe. What do you think his men are like, I'm sorry, you did what? No, 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 we, we didn't mean like change his outfit. We meant kill, kill him. Kill. Like God has delivered him into your hands. By the way, we're going to get a unanimous vote on this. Everyone thinks God has delivered Saul into David's hand. David thinks it, Saul thinks it, all his men think it. This is what's happened. No, 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 we meant for you to kill him. Get us out of this, David. We're tired of this. Kill him. God has clearly delivered him into your hands. So finish him off. Here's where my heart doesn't go. Listen to this, verse 5. Afterwards, David's heart struck him. He's grieved. Why? Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Yeah, that's not where my heart goes. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persu persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. 
And Saul rose up and left the cave and went away. Can you picture that moment? As his men are sitting there, keep in mind, David has no authority over these men. He's not their king. He's not their lord. He's not their war chieftain. He's just some poor guy being chased by the king who a bunch of other poor cutthroats, bandits, tax evaders, whatever, have finally shown up with him. Some of them are probably killers like David. And somehow David persuades them not to kill Saul. And then Saul gets up, cleans himself off, brushes off his robe. I'm always, I'm not, by the way, I picture this happening very slowly. Because David's men are, David's having to hold them in place. There are guys who have knives and spears in their hands. They're trying to get past David. David's keeping them from going anywhere. No, we're not going to do this. No, he's, he's God's anointed. No, this isn't our job. No, this isn't our role. David's already stricken to the heart just that he cut his robe. I've got to quote Alistair Begg here who said, considering what David could have cut off, the robe seems pretty tame. <laughs> this is a key moment for us as Christians to recognize something. Has God delivered Saul into his hands? Everybody seems to think so. Would it have been justifiable for David to kill Saul? I think you can make the case. But David is convinced that David has not been instructed by God to do this. David has not gotten the word from the Lord. Okay? Take him. And until David gets that, David's not going to do it. If you're familiar, there's a fascinating book that came out by Edwards, uh, a guy named Edwards uh, several years ago, called The Tale of Three Kings. It's a fascinating study. I have issues with certain things in it, but, but it's a fascinating study on the concept of who are you in this kingly line. Are you Saul? Are you David? Are you Absalom? If we go, when we get to 2 Samuel someday, maybe we can look at Absalom. But are which one of those three you are? And here's the hard part. No matter whether you're Saul or David or Absalom, you think you're Saul. I mean, you think you're David, sorry. No matter which one you actually are, you think you're David. Absalom thinks he's David. I'm doing what God wants me to do. This is the, I can be like David. I'll be a better David than David. I'll overthrow the kingdom based on my own power and my own will and my own agenda. See, that's the, when you're the kind of person who says like, no, that's, that's my, I have an understanding no one else does. I'm somehow got this special understanding and, and I've got it. I've figured it out and I'm going to do it better. And I'm going to, I'm going to finally take the reins here and I'm going to take, then you're probably more like Absalom, honestly, than you're being honest with yourself. Or if you're more like Saul, that you go, no, my agenda is the right way to do things. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it, and I'm going to do it my agenda, and I'm going to focus my attention on the things I think are important. And if God says no, well, that's just going to have to take a second seat. That the truth is very few of us are the ones willing to, get, willing to say, I didn't make this happen. I'm not going to force it to happen. This is God's. How many more of us would be able to live lives of peace if we could learn to say, this is God's problem, not mine. Which is what David's going to say. God wants me to have the kingdom. Saul's king now. Saul's got to go away. But I'm not making him go away. God's going to do that. If God does it, fine. Until God does it, it's God's problem. I, I take a moment, when I wrote this, I took a moment and had to wrestle through, where have I, where do I feel maybe appropriate guilt there's some appropriate guilt where I have taken the reins in my hand, made the agenda my agenda, forced my way on things. And how do I wrestle through that? How do I say, listen, I'm the one who sets the standard and God has to jump through my hoops or I'm not willing to believe in him. I've decided what's morally right for God to do and not do and God needs to do those things or I'm going to judge him and give him an F or decide that whatever. 
Whereas in the Christian world, the Christian ethic actually is this. We have to do what we believe is right. And let God take care of the consequences. And when we're not sure, we wait. When we don't know, when it comes to that kind of thing, we can wait on the Lord. We can try. We can make efforts. Sure. We even get to risk in His kingdom. That's really cool. His grace is sufficient. At the same time, what we're doing is saying, this is yours, Lord. It's yours. It's fundamentally yours. When I need to get a, a, a time of rest, which I'd, like to, I'd love to spend 30 minutes an hour a day doing this. I'm not faithful to do that. But one of the first things I do is go through the list of my brain. My wife is yours, not mine. My kids are yours, not mine. This church is yours, not mine. My business is yours, not mine. My home is yours, not mine. God doesn't need that reminder, but I do. The ethics and the reminder, I need to do the best that I can with what I understand, and he's going to take care of the consequences. This is extraordinary leadership on David's part and extraordinary humility on David's part. What an amazing example that David is being for his men right now. God has made Saul kings. Saul king. It was not David's job to remove Saul without direct instructions from God, and God had not delivered that to David. And David was willing to wait. Verse 8, then David goes really off the wall. How this must have, his men must not have been okay with this. Saul is left. His men are probably most of them infuriated. Can you imagine, by the way, being David's men? Really, David? You're okay with us doing this for another 10 years. This, this hell on earth that you've put us through, you're, you could have just ended it and you decided, no, oh great, well we'll just hang out here then in the 580 miles of the Judean wilderness um, a little bit longer then. Sure, that's fine, David. You go right ahead with that. Then David gets up and starts walking out of the cave. Can you imagine him in now? Whoa, 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 where does he think he's? No, 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 David, David, what do you think you're? David walks boldly out of the cave in front of 3,000 men and Saul and shouts out, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? By the way, let me just comment here so we don't lose it. So far as we know, no one's doing that. I think David's being gentle here. I think David's being tactful here. He's giving Saul an easy way to repent. If anyone other than Doeg the psychopath is telling Saul that David's out to get him, we don't hear a word of it. In fact, what we hear is everyone telling Saul the opposite and Saul insisting on it anyway, regardless. <laughs> Verse 10, behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today. Notice the repetition. This day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand. We talked about hands last week. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. How does David do this? How does David not kill Saul? After all the torment that he's put David through, chasing his family away from their home, chasing David's wife, probably killed David's friends. All of this has become a nightmare for David, and David is able to restrain himself in this situation. How is he not filled with rage and resentment and justification, just overflowing with it? How did he not immediately, unthinkingly go cut Saul's throat? Maybe it's the Psalms. David has poured out his heart and pain before God over and over again. He has sung it to his men, to his friends, to his family. He has prayed it over and over again. David Guzik put it this way. If David hadn't dealt with his heart before God, Saul would have been a dead man. Don't let that resentment and pain get bound up in your heart. Don't let it stay there. 
It doesn't belong there. Turn it over to the Lord. And if necessary, make it right with other people. Don't let that bind up inside of us. That will cause us to, in the moment, sin before we've even thought. Verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe. Can you see David standing up there on this cliff edge, um, overlooking down these thousands of men? And he's saying, is this your robe? Did you just come out of this cave, the one I just came out of? Saul, is that you? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see. There is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you. My hand will not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. That's that ethic again. But my hand will not be against you. Again, go back and listen to and look at that conversation about the hand that we talked, hands. David is super tactful. He's not sugarcoating, but he is being respectful. I believe David is, is making it easy for Saul to repent here, which is super nice. He doesn't create a situation where Saul has to confess every sin. Verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judging of sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Part of this is David being humble. I'm a nobody. But honestly, part of this, I think, is he's calling out Saul a little bit. You know, you know when, you're, when you're right when you're getting pulled over, you see the red and blue lights behind you and you realize you've been speeding or you just ran a stop sign or something like that and you're pulling over. <clears throat> and there's some part of you <clears throat> that knows, okay, I, I deserve this. I was speeding which is like 99.999% of the time, right? But there's also some little moment, there's one little moment there when you think, don't they have real criminals to be going after? Right, isn't it? That's, uh, you, get, you know you do. Just for one second, you're like, really, me? Out of all the people for you, to, you could right now need to be tasering, you're going to come give me a ticket. <laughs> now, we know, that's, we know it's wrong. So if you're, if you're a, uh, a law enforcement official, we know, we all know we were speeding and thank you for stopping us. That's what we mean to say. But just for a moment in your head, you have that. That's what David's saying here. Really, Saul? You don't have Philistines to be fighting? You're going to come out here in the middle of the wilderness to hunt down a flea? What are you thinking? There is a little bit of that, I think, going on here. And this is a right judgment. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. It's unanimous. Everyone knows that's what just happened, even Saul. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold... I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. There it is again. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Apparently, that's how kings did it. When a new dynasty took over, it's as if the dynasty before never existed. They slaughtered the whole family. Now, there's no reason to ask David to do this. David has already covenanted to this with Jonathan. But Saul's so out of touch, he doesn't know any of this stuff is going on. I want to take just one second and comment on something. The therapist in me cannot help but spot a cycle here. Now, this passage is not meant to be, hey, let me teach, this is not 1 Samuel, this is not Samuel going, let me teach you a therapeutic insight, okay? Not what's going on. However, 
I'm spotting something here that I think is valuable because it shows once again how human, this is the way humans really do behave, how real this is. And for all the nitpicky little problems, there's something very deeply real here. See, there's this thing called the abuse cycle that therapists talk about a lot. We deal with a lot, especially marriage counselors and others. This abuse cycle or addiction cycle, okay? We see it. After, after the abuse happens, you get this guilt, number two on the board, this guilt, this emotional release. It may not be guilt. There's going to be some big emotion here. This emotional release after the abusive behavior or the, the, the horrible treatment or the whatever happens, the cheating, the abuse, the addictive behaviors, whatever, when it happens, there's this sense of, of guilt, which leads to this honeymooning phase. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I have done wrong. And the person may actually feel all of that in the moment. I'm so sorry. I'm so wrong. What have I done? Please forgive me. I will make all this right. I'll never sin again. I will never turn on you again. I will never act this way again. It's never going to happen again. This honeymooning, love-bombing phase. And that may represent a true repentance. It does happen. Or someone truly repents, God gets their attention. I worked with a couple for years where the husband was going to abandon the family and God spoke to him and told him good luck. It was a chilling story the way he tells it. He was leaving his family. Stepped over the threshold, good luck, Brian. He was like, uh, who was that? He said he heard God audibly say to him, the only reason I put up with you so long was for that family. You leave, you're on your own. Good luck. And he said the way to that drove him to his knees, that there in the threshold of his house, he turned his life over to the Lord. And he changed. That's when his family came to get help. They didn't know what to do with this new dad, with this new husband. They knew how to handle the abusive jerk before. They didn't know how to handle this guy. So they're, they all, the whole family's coming to counseling. They're like, what do we do? All these coping mechanisms we don't need anymore, we, and we don't know how to get away from them. That really does happen. It's uncommon, but it happens. How do you know? Well, you have to wait. The answer is you wait. Is this real or is it not? And you wait. And we're going to actually see David does this, this addiction cycle. Is Saul caught up in some narcissistic cycle of abuse? We've seen the behaviors before. He loves to chuck those spears at the right time. And then he apologizes sometimes for it later. He brings people in. Is it real? Is it emotional? Maybe in the moment. But what actually changes? How consistent is the change? What decisions are made? When we're caught up in our, in our sinful behaviors and we feel bad about it afterwards, do we actually make decisions? Do we delete the app? Do we get rid of the contact information? Do we, what do we do to, to, that actually behaviorally changes? Do we get help? Do we seek accountability? Do we confess? Do we make actual visual, visible, measurable changes under the work of the Spirit? If not, it's just emotion. So Saul for real? Well, you'll get to see in two chapters. By the way, sometimes church can have this effect on us. We leave. I'm never going to commit that sin again. I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to do whatever again. I'm going to, but we don't make any actual changes. You know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to make my life different. I'm now going to serve, and I'm going to invest, and I'm going to invest in the kingdom, and I'm going to be part of the Great Commission, and then we get out, and the next thing you know, four weeks have gone by, and we've done nothing. Do we actually serve and give and love and grow? This is not, by the way, please do not hear some Baptist pastor up here giving a behavioral modification talk. That is not what I'm doing. This is the natural outward growth of an internal change. It is the discipleship and sanctification process, the changes that happen. Did Saul change for real? Well, we'll spot it. We'll see. Did David buy it? Well, let's look. Verse 22. David swore this to Saul, which of course is redundant because he's already promised it to Jonathan. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up into the stronghold. 
I think maybe David doesn't buy it. Hey, son, we're all good now. I love your voice, and we're all together, and, and kumbaya, and we're, everything's, everything's all right now. I'm emotionally so sorry. I'm going to take my men and go home. And David's like, all right, good. Thank you. That's awesome. I think we're going to stay here. In fact, we may go up into the stronghold. Let's see what happens. This is another example of waiting on the Lord. Waiting the Lord sometimes means not, you, you let things play out a little bit. I wish I could tell you, like, when are we supposed to act, and when are we supposed to wait, and when are we supposed to, there's no rule that's always the same. The truth is, in a sense, we are always relying on the Lord, and sometimes we know, and when we know, our job is to, to follow that. David here refuses to grasp after godliness. He is not God, and he knows he isn't God, and he's not going to try to grasp God's job from God's hands, which we do, right? That whole Jesus take the will thing would work a whole lot better if we weren't constantly fighting to get back into the driver's seat, right? So, so that's the, I would come to encourage you as we stand, go ahead and stand, as we consider this time of invitation, and consider what is the Spirit speaking to us about? How is the Spirit motivating and, and guiding us and inspiring us? The assumption is that God's Word, even a passage like this that's really just kind of a historical account, there's stuff here. Maybe you would say, I love the idea of a God who goes with me into the wilderness. I realize where I'm trying to create comfort <clears throat> in my life rather than facing the hard emotions, the hard mourning, the hard grieving, trying to face the tough things. Maybe that's the way I'm doing that. Maybe I'm numbing that out in some way. Maybe I need to be facing some of these challenges so that I can appreciate Angedi when God delivers it. Um, maybe that's part of it. Maybe just, like I said, saying, God, this is yours every day. This is yours. It's not mine. I work diligently to do a great job with this, but I do that because it's yours, not mine. There's a freedom that comes in waiting on the Lord. This is the example that, that Paul wants us, the Apostle Paul wants us to have from Philippians chapter 2, which I'll read in a second. As we do this time of invitation, the, the hope would be, if you want to come up here and pray about anything, if you need to go find someone in the room that you need to make a right relationship with, do it now or schedule it later. Pray with somebody in the corner. We'd love to have that opportunity for you as well. If you're ready to come, if you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, um, we hope that this church will be Angeti for us. Um, so feel free to come do that and let us know that as well. Let me read to you. From Philippians chapter 2, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The very words of God.